I haven't seen the film in a while, but I would argue it's one of the best directed films ever. Like, some of the long takes are just groundbreaking. <laughs> So, welcome to a long-awaited film episode with Mr. Patrick Burton, who needs no introduction. Now, just before we started recording, we had a look at Letterboxd, who, which we've talked about a lot. And could you go through a couple of your, your stats on Letterboxd? Just to, <laughs> a couple of my stats. What if, stats do you want to know? I think that, obviously, you, you've got an opinion about a lot of film, and I think that just showing some of these stats in terms of film watch this year, overall films logged... It helps to almost legitimise your opinion because of the amount of hours you've clogged up. <laughs> Does that make sense? Yeah, I actually pay a bit more for my letterbox. I think I pay £14 a year to access stats, which isn't bad at all, really. And they are very detailed and nicely laid out. So if you're interested in that sort of stuff, it's a nice little add-on with letterbox. And it helps support the service. So, I'm looking at my stats page now, and they've got an overall stats page where I've watched 1,105 films since I started the app. And it's actually got how many films I've watched between the years in a nice little diagram. And the most films I've watched from a year is 2019, where I've watched 91 films. And then it kind of descends down to like around the 70s where I've only watched maybe three or four films a year from then. So it allows me to see which years I'm kind of neglecting. So from this I can see that I'm not watching a lot of films from before like the 2000s really. So that's something I'll need to focus on going forward. And why do you think that is important just for variety? Really? Yeah, just having a broad range of like films that you watch really expands yeah the way you view films and your knowledge on film if you just watch loads of films from the 2010s then you just got quite a narrow view and yeah and then it's kind of split up between the years you've had letterbox and more your viewing habits so in 2021 i watched 7.5 films on average a week which is quite a lot (laughs) (laughs) more than one a day and yeah, the stats get really nitty-gritty, because <laughs> guess which day I watch the most films on in a week? I would say either Monday or pro- probably Saturday. It was Monday. Okay. I have no idea why. Just your Monday nights but usually are in... It's nice to know there's a stat there to tell me that. <laughs> it really doesn't What's mean... your least day, do you know? It's Tuesday. Oh, right. Okay, so probably you smash it out on Monday and then... I always have football training on a Tuesday... Oh, it's Champions League. Yeah. So. Oh, football. No football on a Monday. Yeah. Yeah, really. So it really depends on if you're interested <laughs> in this sort of stuff. Yeah. <laughs> if you're a massive stat nerd like myself, these things can be really interesting. And there's also little pie charts <laughs> of seeing proportionally how many films are new watches and rewatches, And it shows that I actually do quite a lot of rewatches, so about 50%, which probably is a bit too high. Like I'd like to be discovering more new films. So yeah, I kind of use these stats to gauge with certain areas I'm missing out, certain decades of films I should be directing more focus to, and which th- sort of actors I'm like kind of attracted to as well. Like, it sh- says what my most watched actors are and my most watched directors. Do you want to take a guess who my most watched actor is? I I think that this is a bit difficult because obviously some actors appear in a huge amount of films than others. So I wouldn't necessarily go with someone like Tom Hanks or Daniel Day-Lewis who have maybe been in a lot of films. Sorry, very good films but not a lot. And maybe someone like... Uh, who's the guy that plays Batman's... Sidekick, not sidekick. <laughs> Michael Caine. Michael Caine. It's not Michael Caine. It's Samuel L. Jackson. Oh wow! Because if you think about it, he's been in a ridiculous amount of films, like the Star Wars prequels, pretty much every Marvel film, Jurassic Park, just like all the blockbusters. Like I've watched twenty-two films from him. 
which is proportionally quite a lot, seeing I've just watched a thousand films. And he's not always the well. A lot of those, as you mentioned, he's not the lead, so yeah, he yeah, does rack up a lot. Yeah, so I do enjoy the stats, but you can. It doesn't mean much at the end of the day. Once you've spent about five minutes looking at them, they kind of just become a bit tedious. <laughs> yeah, as as do a lot of stats, like when looking at football stats, for example. Yeah, but. I think, as you mentioned, like particularly with your viewing habits, you can definitely change if you've watched a certain amount of rewatches. Um, you can definitely acknowledge that, or maybe concentrate on a particular actor or even genre if they divide it there. But one thing that Letterbox does tell you is what films you've watched, and the last five films have been a constant in our podcast and history. We really enjoy it because we like looking at films we've watched together and and kind of reviewing them and maybe recommending them. In this episode, we're going to go through both of our last five, which are all completely different because we haven't actually been together this this summer. Um, (laughs) Sounds very sad. (laughs) So we are going to work inwards. (laughs) Yeah, if you want to put it that way. Fantastic. So this will be a good place for for me to kick off things with a triple bill. Ooh. For some reason, and I don't know whether it's because the news with Johnny Depp and Amber Heard, (laughs) I started watching Pirates of the Caribbean, and I can't really remember why. I think I started it with Nourish, and unfortunately after about an hour she said this is pretty boring. So she, she then proceeded to stop watching, but I... How followed. can you find the pirates films boring? boring. Yeah, she just well, bloody pirates. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good point. It's not and a boring it... subject, man. There's not many pirate films either, is there? There's n- there aren't mainly because it's an extremely expensive genre. Because obviously they're kind of period films, so you've got to recreate a certain time, very lavish sets with the pirate ships and. Exotic like location shootings, obviously, some of it was filmed in the Caribbean, as well as heavy special effects and a large ensemble cast. So it's mainly the expense. Like, I think the Pirates films are some of the most expensive of all time, mainly because of Johnny Depp's salary, but <laughs> yeah. At World's End, I think, came in as the most expensive film yeah. of all time. Maybe that's been broken more recently, but it's a, it's a very interesting trilogy. Obviously, the first one's really, really good. It still holds up now. The special effects are really good. The characters are good. It's a very good introduction to things. They do go downwards, which is not what you want from a trilogy. You want it to increase. But number two and number three are a little weaker, and number three is very messy. But when I've kind of been Googling and having a look on YouTube, there's there's sort of like a hidden what do you call it, not clan, but there's a, it seems to be a lot of people saying this is one of the most underrated trilogies. You know, it doesn't really get the recognition it deserves. Not from serious film critics, anyway. Mm. Obviously, they've made a lot of money and it's become a big franchise. Obviously, with its connections to Disney, it's had that enduring like legacy. Like Everybody's seen the films. But in terms of getting their due respect, they... Haven't really achieved that. Like Mark Kermode, I think hates the films, and there's kind of been a bit of a cynicism and snobbery, like when looking at the pirates films because they are very over the top and silly, and it's Johnny Depp. So there is a lot to criticise, but I think there is a strong argument for why it is a very strong trilogy. Do you like it yourself? Uh, I like the first two quite a lot. I actually prefer the second one just because I think it has a bit more fun with the concept of a pirate's film. I think the first one does drag in parts, and it doesn't quite find its footing till quite late on. But, yeah, the third one isn't great. <laughs> it's just a total mess of a film. I can't Starting remember off in the limbo as well, where Johnny Depp is kind of strange, but not in a good way. It's just trying to be a bit quirky. And then, yeah, the fourth and fifth films are just garbage. The fifth one especially is one of the worst films I've seen in the cinemas. Oh, no. Yeah, see, I, I think I'm going to stop there because it seems like, well, it's directed by the same guy, the trilogy, and it's got the cast of people like Elizabeth Swan, 
Will Turner, who aren't in number four or five, I believe. So I don't think I'll be stretching out to the last two, considering well what you've said in pr- other reviews. But I would I would implore people to to give it a watch again because it, it still stands up. And you made a great point with number two. I think it explores on more themes and it introduces characters like Bill Nighy's, which is phenomenal character. Um, yeah, one of the best visual effects like creations as well. Davy Jones, yes. absolutely phenomenal CGI. With all the tentacles squirming about, it just looks amazing still to this day. Definitely. And it, yeah, it still stands up now. Yeah. So, yeah, I kind of that was my triple bill. I think could definitely speak more about it, but we could leave that to kind of sci-fi action episode that we've got hopefully planned for the future. Um, so what would your fifth film be? Gone Girl. Directed by David Fincher. A nice cheery one. One that I've liked for a long time now. I think I first watched it on a plane when I was like 13, which was maybe <laughs> a bit before my time. Like, it was very disturbing to watch when I was 13, but it's kind of left an impact in my brain since then. I like, really love the film, and I love most of David Fincher's work. It's very psychological and... Yeah, very deep and layered. The more times you watch it, the more you get to unpack these characters. If you don't know about it, basically Ben Affleck's wife disappears one morning. And he has no idea where she's gone. And there's kind of a bit of mystery surrounding their marriage as well. Like maybe it's deteriorated throughout the years and he becomes a murder suspect eventually because there's a lot of yeah clues and pointers to him being the murderer. And basically, as it unravels throughout, you discover there's a lot more to this mystery and that the wife might actually be a psychopath who's trying to destroy the life of this husband. And, yeah, it's a fascinating film and, yeah, it really creeps under your skin. Definitely. It was originally based off a book. Yeah, I haven't read the book, but... Yeah, the the, the book's pretty good. Um, I actually think it's a good example of a film that... I think is done quite well with the with the adaptation of a book because I'm I'm very critical about that, um, but I particularly enjoyed some of the twists and turns in the film, and the performances were, yeah. were actually really good, weren't they? Rosamund Pike as what's she called? Amazing Amy. That's yeah, she she's phenomenal. She kind of plays it with this kind of really creepy edge, where she's very like she's a gorgeous woman, and from the surface she's like oh she's She's the victim here. But as you work your way along the film, you realise she probably is <laughs> controlling all of this. She's like the puppet master. And, yeah, there's a lot to her character that's very fascinating. And it's, yeah, a very disturbing film. Looks gorgeous. As with most of David Fincher's work, it's very technically competent. Like, his films always look, sound, gorgeous and extremely well edited. Great score by Trent Reznor as well. Yeah. What else film. has he done? Trent Reznor. He did Soul, Social Network, Contagion. Often has like a very glitchy techno score with Atticus Ross. Really great score. Interesting. Yeah. The next film I've got down is Children of Men. Ooh. Which was uh yeah, that was a a ride. I thoroughly enjoyed it actually. It was it's quite a it's another creepy one. Very um, bleak very bleak it basically you're transported into a world in the future it's a world where nobody can give birth Mm. and at that moment the first five what year is it 2027 2027 very close five years away the film was made in 2004 i believe 2006 yeah and you're in it you're transported in a world no one can have no one can give birth, and the youngest person, who I think is around 16, has was actually killed. So it, oh, yeah. it causes a lot of... You see it on the news, it's a lot of sadness. Um, anyway, our, our lead character then kind of gets a, a really a real shock, and I won't spoil it, but it's it kind of follows him. But at the same time, I actually watched a YouTube video on this. It's constantly, the way it's directed is you're seeing it through his lens, but then it cuts away from him. And you're I can't remember what the the word for this type of filmmaking is called, but you don't you cut away from the central character to see things that he's not necessarily seeing um, mm. as well. 
Yeah. So you get to see more of the world, and it's a very shocking film. And it, it's again, it's a brilliant one where it's like Greenland, where it explores what humans do under certain scenarios. Yeah, and it's how a we desperate act. situation, really. Mm. Like the product of their behaviour. Like you can't blame their behaviour necessarily. <clears throat> like even the more questionable characters that are doing quite dark things, it feels believable within the world because everything is so bleak and horrible that people are just scrambling to make sense of it all. And, yeah, there's a lot of conflict. I haven't seen the film in a while, but I would argue it's one of the best-directed films ever. Like, some of the long takes are just groundbreaking. I think there's a very famous one on that you can find on YouTube where some characters are driving in a car through the forest and then they're suddenly ambushed by a pack of, like, I don't know, like, a mob. And the camera follows this whole event and they basically rigged the car with about six different cameras to capture it all. And it's absolutely masterful filmmaking. Like, the film is just littered with great long takes. It's just gorgeous. Yeah, same director as a, a very famous Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban, which a lot of people mm. cite as their favourite. Yeah, it's the best. Um, and it's that's got a really interesting uh, yeah. filming style to it. So you yeah, can see Alfonso Cuaron is just a master. Like, he made Roma as well. Like... Some of the best-looking films of all time. Definitely. I, d- I actually gave it a, a bit of a lower score. Well, 8 out of 10, which is still That's high. Well, yeah, good score. Because I think there was... I don't know what it was. I think it was missing... Well, I don't think it was missing anything. It just maybe wasn't a 9 or a 10 for me, which is fine. Well, yeah, there's no moment of catharsis, really, which I think we're, we're prone to expect. Like, we want that moment where everything's resolved... And everything is happy in the end, but <laughs> it's, it ends in a very bleak but kind of optimistic tone. I won't spoil it, but it leaves a lot on edge. Like, it doesn't feel like a satisfying ending. Like, there seems like there's a lot more to unravel. Like, it seems like it's almost begging for a sequel, which I'm glad it didn't get. But, <laughs> yeah, a lot of women. things aren't tied up and, yeah, it leaves you quite cold. But yeah, really. give it a watch. <laughs> Very good film. <laughs> yes, and my next film is a double bill. These two French animated films, directed by Sylvain Chamay, who is a French director, as you can tell by his <laughs> name. But yeah, they're very, very, very strange films, especially the first one, which is called The Triplets of Belleville. I think that's how you pronounce it. Very strange animated films that have a very distinct style. Really interesting, like, character animation and character design. Everything is kind of skewed and weird. The way people move in the film is very odd. (laughs) It's very hard to explain, but basically this one is a young boy has a dream of being, like, a cyclist. And he eventually trains up to be in the Tour de France and gets kidnapped by the mafia and made <laughs> and made to compete in this like underground game where people bet on them to like ride bikes and stuff. It's, but it's all animated. It's, it's very hard to explain, but basically the mum goes on this quest to find her son. So it's basically in tribute to parents, I guess. <laughs> but it's the plot is very inconsequential. Like it's all about the vibe, which is very odd and strange. Just watch the trailer and you'll instantly get what it's going for. And if that's not for you, just don't watch it. But it might be. It's definitely one of the weirdest films I've ever seen. Do Do you find that obviously we are exposed? I was speaking about this the other day. We we're exposed to a lot of animation through Disney, Pixar, and DreamWorks. So do you find that, particularly if it's overseas, like French animation, that it's a lot different the way they capture it? Yeah, it's like the most French film we've ever seen. Like, it's hand-drawn, and it's just oozing with Frenchness. Croissants. <laughs> <Of that. laughs> well, it's just kind of very arty and pretentious. This might sound a bit racist, I don't know. But <laughs> <laughs> it's like surrounding the Tour de France as well. Like, it can't get any more French. Like, the character designs and... It's just very French as well. And the music is all like... Uh, what's the... F- 
Oh, what's yeah. it called? Accordion? Yeah, it's yeah. like something you have All in the hands. music was like accordion players, and yeah, it's just dripping with Frenchness. But it's cool. The second like film he's directed isn't as weird. It's called The Illusionist. Not quite as good, but a little more accessible. Basically follows a French magici- magician who isn't very successful and can't really get a job performing anywhere. So moves to Scotland, where he hopefully can find a job, but again, he isn't really met with any need for magicians. It's basically showing how circus performers and performers in that nature have basically become outdated. Like Everyone's just into music and film now, and nobody's interested in what he has to offer. So it's basically following him just struggling in Scotland, meets a young girl and forms a connection with her, but kind of depressing as well, because it doesn't really end happily. But yeah, slightly more accessible, still nicely animated, not quite as good. Don't have much to say about it, really. Fair enough. So if you would recommend either, it would be the the former? Yeah, the former's a lot better, but a lot weirder. So <laughs> it depends what you like. Yeah. Good films. <laughs> so... Another recent one for me was The Happening, (laughs) which I showed a couple of, I think, Nourish and Frank unironically. Um, (laughs) How can you watch that film unironically? (laughs) (laughs) So, for those who don't know, Mark Wahlberg, Masterclass. And Mark Wahlberg, uh, funnily enough, isn't actually very popular by by the sounds of it um, because of some things he's done in the past. Yeah, he's a bit of an arsehole, to be honest. I think he assaulted a black man. I don't want to get that wrong, but I think he did. Yeah. I think he got arrested for nearly killing a black person. Yeah, when he was younger. And he's a bit of an odd character. He doesn't say, you know, I've seen him in interviews. He's from Boston, so he's going to have a rough background. Yeah, exactly, yeah. And some of his films are hit and miss. Uh, I can see why one wouldn't like his acting. Yeah. He's been in a lot of strange films. Like, he goes from being in, like, near masterpieces like The Fighter to being in utter crap like the Transformers films. Mm. And then Ted or Boogie Nights. I know, it's a right mixture of films, but he can be good. Yeah. Well, in this he's not. Uh, And this is terrible. So The Happening is directed by M. Night Shyamalan, who, again, is very, extremely hit-miss. In fact, I don't know many directors who get it right so well and get it wrong so Mm. badly. So The Happening is basically a film, and you're introduced to a... A weird thing, in, it looks like it's in the air where people are committing suicide all of a sudden. <laughs> um, and then you meet Mark Warbear's character who's having problems with his ex-girlfriend or his girlfriend, um, not really that clear, who's played by... Zoe Deschanel. Who's very flat in this, but I'm sure... She's so bad in this, like one yeah. of the worst performances. <laughs> Some of her line delivery is just hilarious. I'm sure, again, she's good in things like... 500 days She's of summer. She's pretty crap generally, I think. <laughs> Fair <laughs> enough. Not my cup of tea. But you, you basically follow this family in about a 90-minute runtime, uh, manoeuvring their way, manoeuvring themselves against whatever's going on and trying to understand it. And it's it's awful, but it's a guilty pleasure of mine. And I don't know why. I think it's just so ridiculously... The script is awful. The, the writing... Um, the characters, the acting, um, even the music isn't great, but it just works for me. Yeah. And I I think I would advise one to go watch it, just based off the ridiculousness of the plot, of the way it ends. There's of all the plot holes as mm. well. Oh, there's so many things wrong with it. Have you seen it, and what did you make of it? I have seen it, and again, yeah, I agree. It's one of those <clears throat> so bad it's good films. It has been, like, analysed to death on YouTube. Like, you'll find countless videos just kind of making fun of it. So it's kind of, like, beating a dead horse at this <laughs> point. Like, <laughs> there's not much else to say. It just is absolutely terrible, and, but in the funniest possible way. <laughs> like, the dialogue and the line delivery is just so funny. Like, some of Mark Wahlberg's lines are just great. Like, I can't remember any of them. But. There's a particular scene when uh, they hearing people get shot 
and they're standing and they're standing on this bound and what, what, quite a lot of the characters are, are saying to Mark Warburg's character you've got to do something what are we going to do you've got to help and uh, yeah I think type it in it's the happening Mark Wahlberg scene just type that in you'll find it mm. very very funny stuff yeah and there's this random character that's introduced who just goes on about hot dogs oh yeah <laughs> it's like do you like hot dogs <laughs> who doesn't like hot dogs do you want hot dogs and it's just it comes out of nowhere maybe it was marketing yeah, I don't understand. Is it a spoiler to say it's this like airborne pathogen or whatever that's causing people to act violently and commit suicide? It kind of is transferred through like the plants and the trees. I think that's revealed quite early on. But there's this really weird scene where Mark Warburg kind of talks to a house plant. <laughs> like he's trying to, he just comes into a room and like sees the plant and like there's terror. He's like, we're just coming in and then we'll leave quickly. Like, he's talking to the plants that won't, like, get them to commit suicide. Which would be funny, but it's not in the context of the film. It's not self-aware. No. Like, it's... I don't know if it is. It's an odd duck of a film. Why does... Uh, just a quick note on this, because it is really odd. And why does he get it so wrong with things like that and The Last Airbender <laughs> and Devil, for example... But then, obviously, he's created things like The Sixth Sense, which is really, really good. Yeah, for a start, The Sixth Sense and Unbreakable, his two best films, were at the start of his career. Like, it's probably when he was a bit more stripped back and kind of had to prove himself more and show that he was a good director... I think after those two films, he was, like, called next Spielberg. Like, those articles were written, like, he's going to be the next Spielberg. So I don't know if that inflated his ego or something, or just made him too ambitious that he could, like, produce these, like, kind of strange experimental films and they'd just hit every time. But you've got to respect him because he doesn't change his vision in any way. Each one of his films is kind of weird and it is the film he wants to make. So even though they're often terrible, they are full of personality. <laughs> yeah, like, for example, Old, which came out, I think, last year. And it was incredibly weird. The idea that people age very, very fast on a beach is a yeah. great idea. I don't think it was executed that well, but you're right, it's very interesting. Yeah, I think there's always something to take away from his films. And aside from The Last Airbender, he always tries to make original films and has struggled to do so in recent years to the point where he has mortgaged his house off, has funded the films himself. Like, he's a man with passion and he wants to make these films and tries to make original content. So you've got to respect him in that way. Like, he's not a hack like Michael Bay just pumping out Transformers films. Like, he cares deeply about the film industry. You're really not a fan of Michael Bay. Nah. <laughs> but even though I have to say M. Night Shyamalan is pretty terrible, mostly. Okay, my next film, Inside Man, was pretty forgettable. It's a heist film with Denzel Washington and Clive Owen. Clive Owen was in Children of Men as well. Directed by Spike Lee. It starts off quite intriguing, because you can tell that the heist people, what they're called, bank robbers, <laughs> <laughs> they aren't just in it for the money. Like, there's some secrets they want to reveal, and it's possibly linked to the bank owner, Christopher Plummer, and he yeah. has some dark elements in his past that they might want to expose, as well as getting filthy rich. And so there's that angle to the story, as long as, as well as... Denzel Washington trying to de-escalate the whole thing and just the general thrills that come with a heist film. It was quite good. It kind of fell flat in the end. Like, the Christopher Plummer's angle was trying to be a bit more, like, political commentary or have some sort of message. Like, Spike Lee is known for his political films like Malcolm X and Black K. Klansman. So for him to direct, like, a generic action film didn't seem right at the start but then you kind of realize he is trying to push a message by the end of it so you get these kind of two conflicting tones of like a generic cheesy action film and a film that's trying to push maybe commentary 
and they don't quite mesh and it feels a bit jarring and weird uh it's all right check it out it's on netflix if you want so spike lee it, that sounds that sounds interesting but spike lee you mentioned malcolm x and that's <clears throat> a film that i see a lot on a lot of top 50 lists yeah he's made great films like do the right thing as well absolute classic but he has made a lot of crap at the same time. Like he made a remake of Old Boy, which was just a studio job where he didn't really have any passion in it. So yeah, it's it falls more into the old boy category than the good films. Where it's just kind of a bit generic, but at the same time he's trying to work within a studio system and push his message and neither thing really comes to much. But, yeah, Denzel Washington's great, as always. He's a lot of fun. What's his best film, do you think, Denzel Washington? Uh, I haven't actually seen that many Denzel films, but Training Day is great. I really like Training Day. I can't... Yeah, you're right. I'm the same. I can't think of many. I mean, there's a few... Fences is one that I really want to watch. Yeah, Um, I haven't seen that. I started watching it, but it was a bit melodramatic for me. Yeah. He's got a few others, like The Equalizer or Sin City, that are quite big action films. Oh, I've seen Flight. I don't Flight. think he's in Sin City. Oh, is he not? No, that's Bruce Willis, oh, yeah. I believe. I've seen Flight, which which is a brilliant film, and he's very good in that. I've got that on DVD, but I haven't watched it yet. So, we've got two remaining films each to discuss. I did the next two films in one night with my housemates, and one of them was Tropic Thunder. And I'd heard about this film for many years. I'm quite a big comedy fan, particularly around that era where I felt comedy was at its prime. I think about 2006, 2012, there was a lot of Seth Rogen films. There was things like Bridesmaids, In Between His Movie had come out around then. So I remember being, and I was a teenager, I was absolute comedy gold around that point. And I had missed Tropic Thunder for some reason. So I revisited. So I watched it and... Yeah, it was good. I was a little disappointed, I have to say. Maybe if I watched it back then, it would have been better. But I, I felt that, well, the idea of the comedy is you, you laugh. And I, I didn't actually laugh that much. <laughs> and I also felt that it was it was a bit weird because I think a lot of it is trying to take the piss out of other films, which I think is great. So I don't know if you remember it, but one of the last scenes, he says, oh, I'm going to, I'll save everyone um, and end up, getting shot loads of times and goes and I I find that funny because in action films you think oh I'm gonna say I'm gonna I'll stay behind it's just like it's ridiculous everyone should just leave (laughs) um so I I like a few aspects and uh I think Robert Downey I think the cast was brilliant Robert Downey Black uh Black Jack (laughs) Jack Black and Ben Stiller you said that because he darkens his skin in the (laughs) film (laughs) which caused a lot of controversy like yeah (laughs) Yeah, that's the main talking point, really, from Tropic Thunder, is the blackface from Robert Downey Jr., which is totally misread. The whole point in the film is that it is meant to be outrageous and that this pretentious actor's taken his role in the film too far because it's about a production of a war film, isn't it? Yes. So it's very meta, and they cast the actor who Robert Downey Jr. plays to be in the film... And he's so committed to the role of being a black person that he makes his skin black. <laughs> Which is kind of... I find it very funny because it shows how pretentious and far actors can go to get this, like prestigious esteem and like awards and stuff. I really like the film. It's strange because most of the comedy films you've showed me, I haven't really jived with. <laughs> like, I'm often very critical of comedy films, but I really love this one. I haven't seen it in a while, but I think I get off on how it criticised the film industry and takes the piss out of that. I get, yeah, kick out of that. I really love the, like, trailers they have in the film of, like, Ben Stiller's <laughs> character's Simple Jack. Yeah, Simple Jack. <laughs> where he plays a very offensive, disabled character. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But that's true. It's like that's with, so with, with Blackface and Simple Jack, like, I wouldn't say they get away with it, but they're doing it for a reason, you know. Yeah, it's part it's of the commentary. Yeah. It's not that they find it funny to take the mick out of black people or disabled people. 
it's that they're taking the mick out of actors who think that is okay. So people just kind of don't read into these things enough. Like they just see like clickbait on YouTube and want to get involved, like they always do, <laughs> without <laughs> reading into it. Yeah. So uh, yeah, I'm sure a lot of people are aware of that film, but for some reason, and it might be a case of just having it built up for 15 years and then finally watching it and just not. I think I think it was one of those things. Whereas if I watched it back at the time, I would have loved that. Yeah, my next film is Synecdoche, New York, which is one of my favourite films. I'd give it a five out of five. It's absolutely brilliant. Directed by Charlie Kaufman, who is an excellent screenwriter, who's written Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, being John Malkovich, adaptation. One of the best screenwriters of all time. Starring Philip Seymour Hoffman. To describe the plot would be very hard. It's I'll just read the bio here. A theatre director struggles with his work and the women in his life as he attempts to create a life-size replica of New York inside a warehouse as part of his new play. It basically tackles a lot of existential themes surrounding death and your purpose in life and how time slips away. Very scary films, themes. It's a very depressing film and didn't put me in a very good headspace after I'd watched it. <laughs> and But it's absolutely brilliant. The way it tackles its themes is very like abstract and people often go on about how life seems to slip away and like you kind of lose track of time and years kind of kind of like speed away really fast and the film explores this by kind of cutting between scenes in a very jarring way where you don't know how much time has passed so suddenly he finds himself in like a different location and he thinks it's been a week when actually other characters say it's been a year so it kind of messes around with time in a very scary way where it feels very relatable where I can think of times in my life where I think something's just been a couple of months when it's actually been like nine months where you're like holy shit time's really sped away and the way the film tackles that is really interesting yeah it's very abstract and weird and it's very hard to understand on the first watch so this was a rewatch was it or I've watched it three times now and each time you watch it you pick up on more things like it really is a very dense layered film that takes a lot of critical analysis to understand like it's a very intellectual film like it's not one you'd sit down to have fun with <laughs> it's very depressing but absolutely brilliant and Philip Seymour Hoffman is probably my favourite actor of all time like, yeah he's absolutely fantastic I think a few things to mention there. Firstly, it's great when a when a film is not only is good, but obviously makes you think about certain things, like time, for example, and you can see its themes and relate it to yourself. That's that's always good. Not always great if they're a bit existential or like yeah, a bit depressing. Yeah, if you're struggling with something like mental health wise, don't watch this film. Yeah, because it didn't help me in any way. No, and then. Obviously, with Philip Seymour Hoffman, he seems to play characters really well. And like, I think of something like The Master, mm. um, where I just feel he can probably play a troubled character yeah. very well. Well, he it reflects the man himself, because he struggled with heroin addiction before his ultimate death, which came at a very young age. I think he was only like 45 or something. You said ultimate. I... <laughs> I suppose it is ultimate, isn't it? Untimely, I meant. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> untimely. I thought you meant untimely, because ultimate's like ultimate. Yeah. <laughs> I wondered why you were laughing at that. <laughs> yeah. I'll start that again. Okay. Yeah, he's a, he was a brilliant actor, and actually one of those celebrity deaths where it actually was quite painful for a lot of people, because he was so admired, and he wasn't that old at all. But Was he acting at the time? Uh, I can't really remember, but I think it was he was in the middle of shooting a film when he died. And his son is actually acting in films now. He recently starred in Licorice Pizza by PTA. Starring that, yeah. Who actually directed his father in a yeah, film called Boogie Nights. They're all connected, these people. Mm. Nepotism. <laughs> but, yeah, whatever. It's a great film. 
But watch it with caution. If you feel like you're in a good headspace, go for it. If you're struggling at the moment, do not go for it. You might have a mental breakdown. Yeah. Because it is very viscerally painful and depressing. Very sensible. So my final film is Red Line, which... What? (laughs) Have you heard of it? No. So Red Line is a film that was directed by Takeshi Koike. And it's an anime. Oh, shit, yeah. <laughs> you've seen that? <laughs> yeah. I haven't seen that. Have you not? I want to see that. Oh, you've got it on Want to Watch? Yeah. Well, I won't I won't spoil anything too much. It's, it's quite a... To be fair, there's not too much to spoil because in a way it's quite a simple film. It's just basically a car race in another planet on, on this crazy universe. And... I watched it when I was a bit blazed, which helps. <laughs> uh, the The car race is incredible, and it reminded me of the pod racing in Star Wars. And I think if you were to watch it, I'd advise having a really good system, uh, speaker system like we did. We had real good bass, because the audio is incredible. Mm. It's uh, really, bomb- really bassy when the race gets started. Uh, but it, we watched it in dubbed, which was which was fine, and I enjoyed it because the thing is, I mean, you know me, I'm not I'm not big on anime. No. I'm not actually that big on animated things because a lot of people say, "Oh, Rick and Morty is amazing, BoJack," and I want to, I really want to get careful, to- bro. You're stepping <laughs> into dangerous territory. <laughs> I really want to get to because Nourish said BoJack and uh, Avatar two of the best TV series ever, and. I, I want to get into it, but there's something about it, and I think watching anime might help because I've seen Spirited Away and now this, and it's a bit, it's a fun ride if you pardon the pun. Mm. I think you'd really like it. Yeah, I'm I'm the opposite. I absolutely adore anime and animation. It's probably up there with my favorite. It's not a genre necessarily. It's more of a f- form of film, but yeah, I, I love anime. I need to expose you to more anime, Alex. Get definitely. you indoctrinated. Yeah, definitely. Well, I need to show you Redline, mate. I do. You, you're <laughs> step ahead of me. You were very surprised then when I... I was. <laughs> it's a bit It's a bit rogue, but uh, yeah, housemate suggested it and we stuck it on. So the Redline and Tropic Thunder made a very good Where film. Where did you thing. watch it? Was Streamed it, it. Was it illegal? Ooh. Illegal. To be fair, I've just said I've just blazed, so... Did two illegal <laughs> things that night. Yeah, that's the thing you've got to be concerned about, saying you illegally streamed something. Yeah. Not that you blazed. And the worst thing was, the quality was great. Yeah. <laughs> so it doesn't help that the... I, I guess in a way, like... I mean, you don't like streaming stuff, and I completely agree with your reasoning. It makes a lot of sense. Illegal um, streaming, that is. Illegal not streaming. Not Netflix and oh, Disney+. Yeah. Plus. <laughs> yeah. I, I guess your reasons are twofold. Is because, A, it detracts from you know all that money and time spent into putting the film it's a bit of a slap in the face yeah and also for your sake the quality you know you really like your blu-rays mm. and your hd and i completely agree and obviously it d- does detract from that a bit as well yeah i'm generally against it but i'm in favor of it if there's no other way to watch it if the distributors don't make it easy to buy physically and they don't put it on streaming services, what else are you going to do? Like, I want to watch the film. I'm not just... It's your fault that you're not making it readily available. The YouTuber YMS goes on about this a lot and his frustrations with how things aren't readily available and physical media like Blu-ray and DVD. And there's so many films I want to watch which I just can't in any other way than trying to find them illegally somewhere. So I think there needs to be more accessibility to these things. And then what do you make of, so for example, you're on something like Amazon Prime, I mean, Netflix is good in a way because you pay a subscription, you get anything on the platform. So when you go into Amazon Prime, obviously there's free to me section, but you've got also paid movies. So you click on that and sometimes you can rent for £4.50, £3.50. Mm. Other times you can buy for £9.99, which does seem quite steep. Yeah, I'm not a big fan of buying off Amazon Prime. I've done it a few times in the past when there's no other option and the quality can be very inconsistent. I've had some that just aren't HD at all. Like they're marketing themselves as HD streams but they're not. And if you're going to provide that service I think when you buy the film 
you should provide a physical copy as well. Like, I think Sky Movies used to do that back in the day, where you could watch it on Sky, but they also send you a DVD copy. Because it kind of hooks you into still keep using in that service. I think you still keep your films on Amazon Prime, even if you cancel your subscription. But it just means that you keep clicking on Amazon to like access those films and then yeah, accessing the other features and yeah, services they have. So I'm not a big fan. Yeah, and a lot of these films, I mean, I've seen it for myself. They're a lot cheaper. They're three, four pounds physical copy, Blu-ray at CEX. So I think, yeah, I prefer things like Disney and Netflix where you pay the subscription and you get what's included, despite yeah. the fact that their prices are going up. Um, but luckily I don't really have to pay mm. thanks family and friends who I'm logged into their devices yes sir that's what families are for <laughs> <laughs> free movies yes. your final film my final film that I watched last night is The Cabin in the Woods nice which is pretty good it is I've watched it quite a few times now I'm on a bit of a stage of rewatching too many films which happens when I'm not going through my best moment mentally mm. but it does mean I have to get back on track to discovering new films but this was fun kind of satire of horror films because from the way it's marketed and the initial yeah description and the poster you kind of think oh it's just going to be another teen horror film where they get attacked in the woods it's like very generic and boring whatever even the title kind of is the most generic title you could think of. But very soon on, you realise it's not going to be like that. And the the generic plotline is basically a way of exploring other areas. So you start off the film in this kind of corporate world where you meet two kind of smartly dressed characters going through into like these control rooms. And instantly, like, why are we starting here? Like, this doesn't seem very fitting for a horror film. And then you move on to the teens as they go and stay in the cabin in the woods, and it seems very generic and boring. And you realise that all of this is a big setup by this corporate team, and the events that come on are going to be, like, puppeteered by <laughs> this, yeah, group of people. It's very hard to explain. <laughs> I'm trying my best. It had a very... Without... Yeah, you don't want to spoil it too much, I guess, because it had a very good twist. Yeah. Basically, yeah, it's not what it seems on the surface. And how it, everything you see in the film is going to be manipulated in some way to service something else, to stop a bigger threat from happening, basically, so that these characters need to die. And it's essential for the future of humanity that they do die. That's the best way I can describe it without spoiling it. Definitely. But it's beautiful because it works in two ways. And as a generic horror film, like the events that happen in the woods where it's very gory and there's a lot of thrills, like the generic side to it is still very good. Like it's better than most horror films. But then on top of that, it has all the satire and commentary on the horror tropes and stereotypes on top of that and all the reveals so you get two sides to it which is very interesting very good screenplay by Joss Whedon and Drew Goddard yeah it's a good, good film uh, yeah I, I think that's a good point in terms of horror films I think of horror films and maybe comedy films are similar where you just see so many of the same tropes maybe particularly in the 80s 90s things like I Know What You Did Last Summer you know all these types of films that were very much based on someone invading your house that you didn't know or something and so it's nice that they took that but then very creatively completely flipped it on its head mm. and so it's always refreshing when you see like you subvert the word is uh, I'm looking for is subverting expectations that's that's what you really like with this yeah. film I think the first time I watched this film was such a unique experience because you're kind of like, what the what the hell? I thought I was just watching a generic horror film, but no. And the ending is just amazing. Mm. <laughs> just an explosion of chaos and gore that I don't want to spoil, but it's absolutely beautiful to behold for any horror fan. All these little Easter eggs and characters all pop up. It's a good time. The only thing I have to criticise is the characters, mm. which kind of is... 
hard to do because the whole point is that they're meant to be stereotypes and it's playing off the cliches like the jock the stoner the whore i think that's not my term they (laughs) (laughs) made that clear they refer to her as the whore and the virgin like all these kind of horror stereotypes so in doing that they kind of make the characters very cookie cutter and bland and that's kind of what holds the film back. I think they could have had something more to the characters while still maintaining their commentary on horror films. Great point. But even when the film flips, maybe their characters could flip as well. Yeah, I think they could have done more with the concept still. But it's a very valid attempt. It's a good film. So we've had we've named well more than five films each. And yeah, this has been a lot longer than I expected. <laughs> My vocal cords are getting so. <laughs> <laughs> the the film that I'd actually probably recommend above all, not the Pirates trilogy, although if you have a bit of mo- if you have a moment, Children of Men, because when I speak to a lot of people, they don't actually know much about it. Um, maybe for some reason, it's one of those films that slipped through. Maybe it's because it's not on streaming services really. Um, but Children of Men, go and watch it. What's your film mm. that you recommend? Uh, I'm going to still recommend Synecdoche, New York, but again with my initial warning. If you feel in a good place and you feel like you can handle something quite existential and depressing, then go for it, because I think it is one of the best films of all time and a very impressive piece of art and absolutely astonishing to behold. But yeah, go at your own will, I guess. Fantastic. Thanks very much for coming on, and I implore people to download, not even download Letterboxd, but just kind of, yeah, keep getting into film, because I think it's, as you mentioned earlier, the way it can make you feel um, negative, but hopefully many positive, it's it's just such a good way to escape things, and uh, yeah, I've had some great times, not with those films I mentioned. They're yeah, all a bit shitty. Yeah, have been a bit <laughs> depressing this week. Yeah, but generally speaking, yes, especially at the cinema, it's a great experience. Indeed. Keep watching films. See you then.